As co-founder of the influential City Company, which will present its first sustained New York season this year, she has put her stamp on works both classic and newly created. As head of the graduate directing program at Columbia University, she has guided the development of many young directors. And as the author of three books on directing, she has rigorously and provocatively grappled not just with directing, but with the very nature of theater itself. Welcome to the American Theater Wing's Downstage Center. I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theater Wing, and I'm honored to introduce you to Director Ann Bogart. Hi, Ann. Hey, thank you for your kind words. <laughs> You're welcome. They're deserved. Um, City Company has been around for 17 years by my count. Why now for a sustained New York residency for the first time? Well, we began as a, a, a company that was um, internationally focused. We still are. And although all of us live in New York City, we have for the last 17 years toured extensively, both in the regional theater world, in the uh, performance venues, in museums and universities around the country, but also international festivals. And that's been what we've done. But we we all live here, and uh, we're all getting older, and we like to be home. And so we made an executive decision together. That would be a group of people making a decision, hardly called executive, I guess, since it's a, 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 an, agree, an agreement amongst a bunch of colleagues, that we wanted to uh, actually launch our first New York season and, and say, hey, we're all New Yorkers. We live here, and we love to let uh, – uh, you in the doors, not only to our plays, but our processes and uh, our thinking and uh, really start to develop a New York community. We have an international and a national community, but a New York community we haven't enjoyed as much as we'd like to now. While we'll talk about some of the roots of this, you at one point said you certainly never wanted a theater of your own for this company, but being in residence in one place for a significant part of the year, other than the convenience of family and home, what opportunities does working in one place over a sustained period of time offer the company that may have not had before? Well, to the first part of what you said, which was not a question, but I do want to say that, and I think a lot of people who have own or or rent space is real estate is very difficult in New York and we never wanted to become a, a company that was putting up seasons in order to pay our our real estate bills so that never seemed attractive and we've always been a company that has had relationships uh with other organizations with institutions and uh theaters and arts venues and and now um uh, we uh, because we're New Yorkers, we'd like to cultivate a New York audience, meaning a New York family. We have a, a, a great family, a large number of New Yorkers who are actually theater people who train with us and have gone on to create companies after working with us, and that's fantastic. But in terms of, uh, of regular audience friendship is something we're looking to build. And I know from, from, say, working over the course of 10 years in a place like Louisville, Kentucky, where uh, Actors Theatre of Louisville brings us practically every year for many years. We developed a, a fanatic, fanatical, which is the word, fanatic <laughs> audience. Um, that the loved fanatics our work. are fanatical. The, fan, the fanatics who came fanatically into the theater every year, rolling up their sleeves, saying, "What are they going to do next?" And that's an extraordinary thing to build an audience over time. And although we have performed in New York, we've been at BAM three times and New York Theatre Workshop quite a bit at uh, CSC, even PS122, we, we haven't actually committed to a regular, regular season that people can count on. So it's about family. It's about extending a family because theatre is really mostly about the audience. In doing this season as just City Company, not in partnership with some of these other companies that you've done, how did you go about deciding what works would be seen? I was struck by the fact that you're starting with Antigone, but really just with a handful of performances. Well, uh, s several um, discussions happened around what we would do at DTW, Dance Theatre Workshop, which is where we're, we're uh, launching our, our season. Um, one of our frustrations is that when we're in New York, we, do, we usually do our crazy, kooky, devised, or... Uh, uh, what people use the word I hate, which is experimental work. And that's really the um, uh, the reputation we have. But in fact, we do a great deal of classic work. And we've mostly done it outside of New York City. And Antigone is a play that 
we came upon um, through our work with Jocelyn Clark, who's um, an Irish writer. He's he's a dramaturg and writer from Dublin, and we've done a number of his plays. And he he developed this piece, and it's this Antigone piece is astonishing. And by the time we got to start talking about booking with DTW, they had one week available. I think we would have done it for more than a week if they had more than a week. And they did have a month available uh, in uh, April, May, which we grabbed for Bob Rauschenberg America, which is one of our sort of longtime hits that we've taken everywhere and keeps returning. So we're we're excited to to do both kinds of uh, of plays. One that's deeply deeply rooted in 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 ancient theater history, and the other that is Charles Mee, who's an extraordinary living playwright, also a member of the company. And then there are these Monday nights, city yeah, city Mondays, which I see. It says they're happening. What are they going to be? Yeah, there there are five separate Monday nights um, in which we open the doors to uh, those who are interested to look at our process. And for the first Monday night, we will be doing an evening of work uh, showing excerpts of work from our past work with composers, with musicians. So it's the music night. And the second Monday night will be about training, which is a really large part of what we do, a particular kind kinds of training. And the third Monday night will actually be with the Martha Graham Company, with whom we're building a new work. And the fourth month, yes, that's true. You're, the look in your face is interesting. And the, Just that it's intriguing. Yeah, it is intriguing. It's, it's and radio. The, <laughs> so yeah. no one can really I know hear. that's why I mentioned your eyes. Yeah. Uh, and the fourth uh, Monday is with um, with all the work that we've done with Chuck Mee, Charles Mee, the playwright, which is quite mm. extensive. And the final week, which I can't remember which month is in, we're uh, doing uh, – a Monday evening of excerpts and and showing how we create what what's called devised work, meaning working without a playwright that is gener- generated by a, an ensemble and myself. So it sounds like you're curating a retrospective of of the company's work in some ways. Although the Martha Graham piece obviously is new. But. Well, the cur- current and past. Yeah, we're trying to again uh, share our process so that we are not quite as much of an enigma as I think we are in New York. Hmm. Well, we'll come back to City Company because understanding what the company is and how it works is important. But I think it grows out of experiences that you had prior to starting it. So let's go back to you were uh, a Navy kid, moved around, read that uh, the longest time you spent in one place was two and a half years in Japan. Where did theater come into your life as someone who was obviously moving from place to place through throughout your your childhood years? Well, first of all, I'm impressed that you know these things. And secondly, uh, theater is like the Navy. In other words, well, I'll tell you, not so much in terms Depends of... Depends on who's directing, but... <laughs> well, I come from actually a Navy family on both sides from way, way back. As a matter of fact, my my... Uh, family is so military that my great 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 grandfather was the captain of the Minutemen. That's how Navy. That, that, although that's not Navy, but um, m- my grandfather was uh, for a while in charge of the Pacific Fleet during the Second World War and is known for winning the Battle of Midway. That's. I mean, he, he was a strategist oh by the name of Spruance, my mother's father. So, growing up in the Navy was <clears throat> was all I knew. But. What what happens is, is in the Navy is you have an intense experience with a group of people, meaning you go to a school as a kid, you fall in love with everybody, and then suddenly you're ripped apart after these fantastic experience and sent somewhere new. Well, theater is just like that. You have an intense experience. I mean, perhaps the reason I have a company is so that I don't get ripped apart so often. You have an intense experience. Everybody falls in love. You do something extraordinary, and then you leave, and you sometimes never see those people again. So, uh, so I was sent to um, usually very large schools, and I would found, find a place in the in whatever school I was at where they were doing plays, and that seemed to me uh, totally mysterious, but also was quite wonderful because because uh, you'd have an intense experience. I usually was backstage. I would you know pull the curtain and run around in the. Um, in the hallways uh, during classes with a with a, 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 a note saying I'm looking for props so that nobody would 
put, get me into trouble. But um, they would be intense and delightful and all about uh, little societies forming and, and dissolving again. And, and this seemed natural to me. So I did theater. I've always done theater. And I, I, I started directing quite young. And, and I, I have to say I haven't really done anything else. Most – you say that you started – we're mostly working backstage. So many people, no matter where they end up in theater, talk about how they started performing and then learned there were other things. Did you ever perform? Did you ever want to perform? No, I never wanted to perform. I always was interested in the machinations of putting a show together. And Hmm. to this day, I'm still fascinated by what that is. I'm also fascinated by actors. I fall in love with actors all the time because I, I admire so intensely what they do. I think what they do is... Is, is more interesting than astronauts or great, great athletes because mm-hmm. what they do is so uh, difficult and exposing and I think they're doing it for humanity and they're, I think in their act of acting, they're saving humanity. So to answer your question, I never wanted to act because I never thought I could. I, I'm not that talented. Physically, I'm not that talented, although I enjoy moving and dancing. And, but... but uh, uh, I was always in great awe of actors and totally fascinated by what they do and how they do it. And that sustained me to this day of my ancient dotage of late 50s. (laughs) (laughs) Although it's a story that you've told... A few, quite a few times, I have to ask you to tell the story of how you came to be directing the high school play when you <laughs> were all of 15 years old. Yeah, I had a French teacher whose name was Jill Warren, and she I have to credit Jill with probably introducing me to art. I had been brought up on Walt Disney movies, which is what you see on Navy bases, and had never really been to see a professional play. And had worked on on plays in high, in school, high school, and 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 um, middle school. But sort and of the standard repertoire. The standard repertoire. I mean, I think the most extreme thing we did was uh, Charlie's Aunt. Or, wow, yeah. cross dressing. <laughs> and we did Brigadoon, and you know, there was there was um, a really standard repertoire of of pretty banal stuff, which I still found thrilling. And along came my French teacher who not only took me, I remember, with my class to see a movie called Elvira Madigan, which changed my life completely. I'd never seen a film from a foreign country with um, such artful, uh, uh, such art. I had never seen art like that. But she also decided to direct at school The Bald Soprano. This is in 1967, The Bald Soprano in Middletown, Rhode Island. I mean, think about it. Middle, we used to call my high school middle-class high school. It was called Middleton, Middletown High School. Imagine The Bald Soprano, 1967. I'm 15 years old. And, of course, I, I joined the production as what they called the student director, which meant that I got hall passes to get uh, props during classes. And, you know, I did whatever <laughs> These she hall wanted. passes seemed to have been very important The hall passes <laughs> were great because you could get out of class. And, and, and theater was done in what many people might remember as something called the cafetorium. <laughs> it was where you had lunch, and theater always smelled like lunch. And at one end of the lunchroom, there was a curtain that got pulled aside, and that's where theater happened. And I started doing what I had done many times, which is helping Jill Warren out. And this this um, sounds like all about Eve, but I got a phone call about a week and a half before we opened, and she said she was very ill, and would I take over directing? And all the right things happened. One, I had a crush on the guy who was playing Mr. Smith. Jimmy Cometa was his name, and he used to chase after me in his little car, and I had a little car, too. They were uh, We both had Renault Dauphines. Oh, I guess I must have been 16 because I just had gotten my uh, driver's license. And uh, and he uh, was playing Mr. Smith. And, and I also had to look at the play and figure out what the hell it meant. You know, what, what possibly could this absurdist um, play mean? And the most important thing perhaps is that it was a success because if it were not a success if the audiences didn't enjoy it i probably wouldn't have had the courage to say i want to be a director for the rest of my life and that helps a lot and sometimes i think i i still direct the same way exactly the same way that i directed uh uh bald soprano i mean as much as one studies and thinks that one has learned and changed and developed and seen work around the world i still think that my sense of time and space and my sense of humor and the way things move musically on the stage, and I mean musically in the sense of time, but also space, 
are the same and haven't changed at all, which is a little bit um, disconcerting to think about after a lifetime of seeing theater and being influenced by people. Mm. So was that, that was the epiphany for you, that that theater was going to be it? Oh, yeah, and it was around the same time. And I know this, I was also 15. I don't remember how I was driving when I was 15, but maybe I shouldn't go into that. But I was also 15. I'm sure the statute of limitations has run out. You're safe. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, I, I also saw a production of the Scottish play, Macbeth, in Providence, Rhode Island, which was done by Trinity Repertory Company. And at that time, Adrian Hall, who was the artistic director of Trinity Rep, had gone to Washington to the newly formed National Endowment of the Arts and had demanded a million dollars, which in 1967 was a lot of money, and said he wanted to bring every school child to see theater in Providence with his theater company, uh, Trinity Rep. And I was one of those school kids, and I went to see it. And the, the, the lesson that I learned from him was, and to this day, it's a lesson that I live with. And I didn't meet him until 20-odd years later, or 15-odd years later, when I became the second artistic director of Trinity Rep. But uh, uh, the lesson was, don't talk down to your audience. Because with that million do- dollars, he could have done anything, any sort of kid's schlock. But he spoke from the most courageous, rambunctious, visceral, intelligent place that he and his company could possibly function from. And it was completely challenging. I didn't understand a word because it was Shakespeare. I'd never seen Shakespeare before because we didn't do that in high school. And, um, I, 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 you know, the witches were coming out of the ceiling. It was a set by Eugene Lee. Uh, the, 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 the action was happening 360 degrees around us, and I was completely terrified. And what I learned was theater also is not about understanding it's about taking my experience at 15 years old and reaching towards this other experience with everything that I had learned and could function with and try to meet it. So I, I, knowing that at 15, I could never even think about the idea of talking down to an audience. Um, hmm. I always think that when we're young because we don't have, and in your case, it sounds like you had none, preconceived notions of what theater is supposed to be. We're more open to whatever it chooses to be than we are as adults when we've been taught or learned or simply by experience come to expect certain things out of theater. Do you think that was the case? Yeah, and that's also just the way the brain functions. We get neural pathways that we sort of tread hard on and then they become so... Uh, we become so used to the way we think, but it's our job, and I think that's what art does, is offer new neural pathways to, to, to create new access to new feelings and new ways of thinking about things. And certainly the point of seeing theater for me always, or traveling wherever I do to see theater, is to, to, or, or artists in the theater who are doing something revolutionary or or uh, uh, courageous is to actually change the way I think about theater. So I think it, it certainly for the artists involved and uh, to, 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 to offer audiences uh, new neural pathways, new new uh, ideas about how social systems might work, which is what the theater is about, is always about social systems. It's about can we get along in this play, in this room, between audiences and, and and actors, which is why I'll never make a film. It's just too interesting um, what it means to be in a theater. Hmm. So with these seminal experiences, you get ready to go off to college, and you were looking at Seven Sisters schools, Vassar you know and Sarah Lawrence. <laughs> yeah, yes. Well, I try to do my homework. Um, yeah. only, I've only known you as an adult, but you don't necessarily strike me as as somebody who, especially with the profile of those schools were in those days, that that was necessarily the right match for you. Oh, I wanted to go to a a women's school. That was really important. And in those days, Vassar and Sarah Lawrence and Bennington and all those schools were women's schools. And there was something that I thought would be really terrific to go to a school that uh, had uh, liberal, liberal, liberal sort of kind of education. My mother had gone to Vassar, and uh, I have to say that she was so disappointed that I was rejected. I was actually rejected from every place I applied, all the sort of top uh, uh, 
women's colleges. Um, and, and ironically, before my mother died, um, I, ha- I received a, a, a letter from, from Vassar saying, would you be interested in running our theater program? And I called my mother. It sort of made her <laughs> lifetime. She was so happy. She said, you have to call them and tell them they turned you down. I think she was mad at them for 20-odd years after uh, after they turned me down. So it sort of was a happy thing before she died that that she learned I wasn't a complete failure at Vassar, which is her <laughs> you just got in, You got offered a spot at Vassar 20 yeah. years late, but you still got the, finally got the offer. Yeah, yeah. Um, so you didn't get into the initial schools. You then looked at some arts yeah. schools. Well, I, I, I wanted to be a director. Mm-hmm. I really did. And the first, the, I ended up going to four undergraduate colleges. Because every time uh, I'd go to one, I, I went to the first one I went to uh, w- would take anybody who could sign a check, and I directed while I was there. It was called Briarcliff College. It doesn't exist anymore. And then I became I was directing there, and but there was no way I was going to stay for more than a year. It was a really silly college. It doesn't exist anymore, as I think I just said. But uh, I thought, okay, I'm going to really I'm going to uh, apply to serious conservatory schools because I want to be a director. So I applied to the then forming Cal Arts. And I applied to Carnegie Mellon and, you know, every place that was serious and was, again, turned down from all of them. And so I ended up going in my second year of college to school in Athens, Greece. It was a one-year program, and that was fantastic. You know, it was, again, not planned. It came out of failure. Uh, yeah, of not getting accepted. And it was sort of a, a last-ditch attempt to, to try to do something. But the, in Greece, I lived there, ended up living there for a year and learned modern Greek and studied uh, history and archaeology and Greek theater. And that, you know, that's, you can't get a better education than that. So, so it just kept going like that. Um, I finally uh, graduated from Bard College, which I loved. I loved so much I stayed an extra year. I was in complete heaven because at Bard in those days, and I think it's probably still true, you could do whatever you wanted. And I just directed plays like crazy. <laughs> With people who just wanted to make plays with me, and that was that was that was complete paradise for me. So you up and moved to New York once you finally decided to leave Bard. Yeah. And how did you start finding work? Because so often now we hear of people who go through directing programs, and what they get is being the assistant to the director of something, which sometimes means getting their tuna fish every day. Yeah, I, I have actually never assisted, and I have ambivalent feelings about that. What I did is I came to New York, and I got a, a series of really odd jobs, like the collections department in a water company. And I did I worked in, with schizophrenics doing actually theater workshops, or I did uh, I worked for after-school programs. I worked on Wall Street as a, an expense analyst. But while I was doing it, I, I, I also, because it was 1974, I had a, uh, got a loft in on Grand Street between Crosby and Broadway, right in Soho in 74, that had uh, uh, three bedrooms, a uh, living room, a kitchen, dining room, and a dance studio for $325 a month, which I shared with two other people. So we each paid $100 a month. So it had space, which was amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I asked around New York, I said, how do you find actors? And they said, well, you put an ad in Backstage. So I put an ad in Backstage that said, actors interested in an exploration of assassination and murder using Shakespeare's Macbeth, write this, uh, call this number. And I forgot to say there's no money, which, of course... The phone began ringing, ringing, and to this day, I have a fear of that analog phone sound. I, 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 because the phone did not stop ringing, and half the people who uh, called when I told them there was no money, they hung up. But the other half wanted to audition, and here I am, twenty-three years old, and thinking, I don't know what I'm doing. So, um, I, I decided that I would have uh, interviews. I'd interview people one at a time. So I put up a table in the dance studio, and I'd bring people in one at a time. And I would sit behind the table, holding the table so people wouldn't see that my hands were shaking. And for some reason, I'd have them do read a, a, a poem by Sylvia Plath. I don't remember why that was. But my memory, the one that has been so deeply ingrained in me, is of, of a guy twice my age who came in for an interview, even though there was no money. I looked at his resume. There were film. He'd done television. He'd done Broadway, off-Broadway, off-off-Broadway. He'd done everything, advertising, everything. And he, his, his, actually he smelled a little bit 
like liquor. I think he'd probably drunk a little bit before. And he began weeping. And he said to me, I just want to do something that means something. Mm. And this was a Pandora's box that opened in front of me at the age of 23 where I saw the state of a New York actor, which was just extraordinary. The... um, uh, the depth of, of of longing and of commitment and of wishing for the right things to happen. So I started making theater wherever I could. And for many years, I couldn't get a theater because I didn't have a resume. So I started making theater in what we now call site-specific locations. But then was just because, you know, I couldn't find a place. So we would use uh, uh, various locations and, and actually got it quite a name for doing site-specific work before it was... Um, a fashionable thing. <laughs> hmm. at, I know you worked at some point with On Guard Arts, which which did that kind of work. Was that yeah. did that come out of this, or was that just coincidence? Well, actually, Ann Hamburger, who is now back in New York after having being a vice president at Disney, she's right recently come back to actually start doing um, large uh, sort of art musicals on on, on large scale. Anyway, she's a wonderful producer. We were both kids together in in downtown in the Lower East Side, and she was part of my little company of people who Uh. made – uh, uh, m- m- made uh, plays site specifically, and she f- started out as an actress, and uh, but she was terrible. She was like the worst actress in the company. And finally, she came to me and said, "You know what? I'd like to just help you make it happen." Hmm. And at those days, I didn't even know the word producer. But she would put on her dread- red dress and go talk people into giving us, you know, cafe tables or find these amazing places. She found the most amazing places around New York. Hmm. And then she went to Yale and got her degree in producing and started On Guard Arts, which was for 10 years the hardest ticket to get. And she did um, site-specific work all over Manhattan. And I did several works with her at On Guard Arts, and she was my producer. But it then. came out of that era where you were making theater together. Yeah, we were, we hmm. were really just kids – we were literally kids, I think, making it up. And people for 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 reservations, people would call my uh, answering machine, which was a new machine back in those days to have an answering <laughs> machine. And they would make reservations on my home answering machine, and I'd tell them, "Okay, meet at Tompkins Park at you know eight o'clock on Sunday, and bring a flashlight." <laughs> wow, that was how we did it. You said a few minutes ago you hate the word experimental. So how is it that you came in 1979 to begin teaching at what was then called the Experimental Theater Wing oh, at NYU? I was so lucky. To, that is an incredible stroke of luck. And I ended up teaching there for seven years. And it was the best kind of school I ever went to. Um, what happened is I did get a graduate degree, an MA, from what's now called Performance Studies at New York University. It was then called Theater History and Criticism or something. And after studying for two years, which was reading basically and, 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 and really a fantastic education because the program was interested in anthropology and sociology. So I learned not to you know how to direct a play but what is a play what is an audience where does that even come from so that was a great education um and so i thought i wanted to teach and so i sent uh letters all over the country to every place in idaho and you name it and i nobody wrote back you know whenever i saw an opening and I went ahead and made my sort of site-specific work in downtown New York. And all of a sudden, uh, uh, Ron Arglander, who ran the Experimental Theater Wing, which was quite new then at New York University, it's an undergraduate program, came to me and he said, would you teach it at, at ETW, Experimental Theater Wing? And I said, what? What would I teach? And he said, well, I've been seeing your shows constantly. Do that with the students. And I said, okay, very nervously. And I did, and I ended up... Because I didn't know how to teach or what to teach, I made things with those students. And I made them for seven years. We made big classic plays. We did. We even did South Pacific. We did. Well, uh, I want to talk about the South, yeah, Paci- right. South Pacific. The height of my career. Well, yeah. But what's amazing about the South Pacific, and, you know, I, I was in college at the time you were doing this work. I mean, here was a production. You were a teacher. You were doing this with undergraduate students. Um, and you did a production that became nationally known, yeah. both through its creativity and notoriety for what you did. Um, can you can you explain briefly what your conception of it was, and then did, did it loom as large for you 
as it did in the minds of the people, for many of whom that was the first time we we heard of you. Well, when you do a classic play, and South Pacific is certainly a classic, what are you what are you actually doing? Are you trying to recreate the original work? So, do you look at photographs and make a set that's somewhat like the original production, which was I think nineteen forty nine? which has lo- that look and that c- encasement has sort of lost its meaning. Or, and this is what I thought was more appropriate, is you look at the energy that was released in the first production. What happened when South Pacific came out, which was just after the Second World War, it was a kind of advertisement, sort of pepsodent advertisement for patriotism in a sense. It dealt with racial issues in a very interesting sense. It had some of the most glorious music you'd imagine. But to stage South Pacific with young people as a, as a sort of homage to the original or to make sets of uh, islands and palm trees didn't feel right to me. So I thought, how could I tap into that feeling of patriotism and that feeling of uh, the, 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 uh, the emotional quality that you find in the original? And so I thought it th- that was 1984. And in that time, the United States had just gone into Granada and Beirut, and it was a big deal. And so I thought, what would happen if uh, young people who'd had traumatic experiences in B- Granada or Beirut uh, maybe were were suffering from, um, what do you call it, stress syndrome? Uh, uh, post-traumatic stress post-traumatic disorder. Post-traumatic stress disorder. What would happen if there were a clinic that they could go into where they would help be, they, they would be helped by being brought back into uh, normal society? And what if in this clinic, as a graduation ceremony, the people in the clinic performed South Pacific? And so what if, say, if <clears throat> if you were a, a guy who um, lost his best friend in a trench, uh, you might be assigned to sing Ain't Nothing Like a Dame because that's basically a male bonding song so that it would actually help you heal through the doing and the performing of this play. So my question is always, who needs to perform this play now, whenever I do any play that has a history? So our play was set in a clinic. So rather than the island and the uh, palm trees, you saw a white Venetian blind glass uh, stage. Um, and the the people who played out the play were actually had a secret cause, as James Joyce ca- called it, that they were actually g- coming back to society through the kind of exorcistic uh, activity of, of of singing and playing out these this story. So, did the the attention that that garnered what did that have a signal effect on your career, or was it simply one just one of many shows you were directing that happened to get? more notice number two it was definitely just one of more uh, one of many shows i was directing that people started wanting to come to and Hmm. it was nice you know working with nyu students was fantastic because i i I like to think of it as my graduate training so for seven years i just made plays and people came and we were given more and more uh facilities by the by the uh school of the arts because they were happy with the attention that was being brought to what we were doing Hmm. But it was like having a company in a sense, except that students would come through. And to this day, there's a company member in City Company who I work with, uh, Barney O'Hanlon, who was in one of those plays. You know, he was an 18-year-old, and, and I found a, a partner that I've now been working with for 25, 7 years now. Oh, during this period, were you also going off and directing other productions, you, you know, either for your own, whatever company you gathered <laughs> or are under your own auspices, or starting to do freelance work at at other theaters. It's actually uh, even more interesting than that. I was during the early, the initial years, I was uh, uh, doing plays. Again, I would try to get theaters to, to to let me direct in their theaters, but I was doing work that I produced myself, or my friends and I, like Annie Hamburger, and I would produce. But what happened is, I fell madly in love with German theater at that time. I saw a film called, uh, based on the play uh, Summer Folk by Gorky that was done by the Schaubühne in Berlin, and I became a fan in the, in the kind of fandom, the really stupid fandom where I, I, I memorized all the names of the company. I could tell you every play they did. You know, I was really annoying that way. And I learned to speak – I studied German because I was so fanatically interested in this – 
in the, in the company, and I started meeting people who'd seen their work in Berlin, and 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 I was I was so uh, hungry because they were doing plays like I had never seen people do it. They were thinking about theater in ways that I didn't was unfamiliar. So I started stealing from the work of the Schaubühne, and. Uh, the funny thing that happens, and this is I, 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 this has happened in more ways than one, is when you, in my life, and I feel very fortunate for it. When you fall madly in love with something, it comes back the other direction. What happened was, after two, I think two years uh, after I, I became obsessed with the Schaubühne in Berlin, um, an article came out because what would happen is I'd be working in New York in my downtown kind of theater, and I'd always get a fo- I get phone calls all the time saying, "Hello, my name is Hans. I'm from Germany." I because people would say, you know, if a German theater person would come to New York, all my friends would say, "Call Anne. She loves German theaters." So they'd call me, say, "I'm looking for experimental theater in New York. Can I come and you know would ask to come see rehearsals?" And they would always say, "I'm looking for spontaneity because Germans can't be spontaneous." Anyway, that's another. <laughs> story. So I would invite them to my rehearsals and sometimes I even cast some of the Euro trash actors in my plays because they could work for nothing since they were just hanging out in New York. But what happened is I think two years after my initial infatuation, an article came out in the Teatro Hoyte, which is a big glossy theater magazine uh, in Germany, which which is subsidized, and so it's a fantastic theater magazine that I used to steal all my ideas from. I would I would I would go through for those two years, find everything the Schaubühne ever did, and started lifting the ideas. Two years later, an article, four page article, full of photographs, came out about my work in Teatro Hoyte, saying this is the new American work. And I'm thinking I stole all my ideas from <laughs> the magazine. Uh, anyway, and from that. Uh, one article I was invited to direct in many places in German-speaking countries, mm-hmm. in, in, in Germany, in Austria, and and Switzerland, and I accepted every invitation. I decided I was leaving New York, enough is enough, and I wanted to become German. Hmm. But actually, that... Um, that trajectory uh, taught me, and through through doing doing a lot, quite a lot of work in Germany, Switzerland, Austria, in German, I actually learned that I'm an American, and that I have an American sense of humor, an American sense of logic, American sense of space, and I fell in, madly in love through my exodus with American culture, and the years, the decade after those years in Germany has all always about doing work about American culture that included works on American vaudeville, silent film acting, you know, marathon dancing, um, plays by quintessential American authors that are on the verge of being forgotten, like Elmer Rice, you know. And so, so a lot of my work to this day is about exploring um, the roots that, that uh, form the DNA of, of who we are in, 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 in the performing arts. So you had to go away to learn more about home. There's probably some, classic, right? <laughs> some phrase that, out of some book that I should have There's no place like home. That's well, the, uh, there's, there, there's one. <laughs> yeah. So in terms of homecoming, you had these profound experiences in Rhode Island, and in 89 you were offered the opportunity uh, to succeed Adrian Hall, as you said at the beginning, to be the second artistic director of Trinity Repertory Company. And as the phrase goes, sometimes be careful what you wish for. What, what was that year for you that you ran that company? The reason I accepted and actually pursued and went after Trinity Repertory Company is because I came to understand that I needed a company. And I came to understand that through a conversation with the French director Ariane Mushkin, who runs Le Théâtre du Soleil, not to be confused with Cirque du Soleil, Théâtre du Soleil <laughs> company in, in, in Paris or just outside of Paris. Who, and she's really my hero. Every theater person, you have to have a model. And she's a generation older than I am. And she's somebody who I look at and I say that's that direction makes sense to me. And I had a conversation with her, where she ended up very sternly saying to me, "Well, what are you going to do without a company?" And in that moment, I had an epiphany, which was that all great theater I'd seen, with no exception, and dance was always done by a company. And in an epiphany, which takes less than a second, 
that's what I realized I wanted to do. So Trinity Repertory Company was uh, my company, but it wasn't. That's the problem. But at that point, we should point out that by the late 80s, many theaters began as repertory companies in the United States in the burgeoning of regional theater in the 1960s. Trinity was one of the few theaters left that actually had a resident company. Yes, and a very, very powerful and good acting company. And this was attractive to me because I thought, oh, no-brainer, I need a company. But what I learned in my wonderful and terrible one year at Trinity before I was let go was that you can't inherit somebody else's company Hmm. because this is a company that had been nurtured and created by Adrian Hall, who is a staggeringly brilliant director. And they have a history with him not with me, that my approach is different, my passions are different. And it, it was really like vinegar and oil in some ways, although I still to this day you know, uh, value the, the plays we did together, the quality of their acting, what they were able to do in rehearsal in front of a performance. So it was, a, it was truly a great and horrible year. It was horrible in that I, I, wanted to be, I had intended on being there for a decade and only lasted a year. And it was a brutal, brutal ending. So when you departed from Trinity, did you then say, I'm going to go create a company? Because certainly it was only two years later that you began City Company. How did that come to be? When when you speak, things start to happen. I've always believed that you talk something into existence, which is why talking with you is a great opportunity because um, – because of the stories that one can create that are both past, present, and future. Um, It was clear to me that I needed a company. And so when anybody ever asked me, whether it was in an interview or a conversation with a friend, what do you want? I'd say, a company. And I think that is why um, I was funneled into the world of Tadashi Suzuki in, in Japan. Tadashi Suzuki is a brilliant, brilliant Japanese director, also a generation older than I am. He, he, he has nothing to do with the um, violin technique. Suzuki is like the name like Smith in Japan, but he's a, he's a national treasure in Japan and has had success around the world, uh, really, with his company. He came to me and proposed that we would start a company that would be a uh, a uh, uh, would be a company that would be about the um, friendship of theater artists around the world, and he said exactly that he would help me for the first four years, but then in four years, and this was translated from Japanese, he said I'd have he would have other things to do. I didn't believe a word of it at the time. I just kept thinking, oh, Japanese money, great. We can do something with that. He th- and I said yes to everything, but I didn't know that everything that he actually predicted would come to be. And so for the first four years, indeed, we did it together. We would go to Japan. We developed a group of American actors who became the core of City Company. We would create new work. I would make a new work in, 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 in Japan at his um, – amazing uh, theater enclave up in the mountains, uh, what they call the Japanese Alps, quite far away. Uh, And then we would bring this work to Saratoga Springs, which was um, uh, uh, where we had our, and to this day, have our summer residency. I don't pretend to know the entirety of Suzuki's work, but I do know that part of his work is about a particular kind of physical technique and approach to acting. And so were you already an aficionado of his style and wanted to merge that with American style, or was it about the Americans having to learn the Suzuki style? I had been exposed. I first saw the Suzuki uh, method of actor training, which is what it's called, um, which is based on both ancient Japanese uh, theater, but also his understanding of, say, Greek, ancient Greek theater. It's a very, very fantastic approach to actor's training. I had seen it because I was teaching for a while at the University of San Diego in La Jolla, and at that time... All the graduate students were did three years of, of Suzuki training every morning for three years, and they invited me to come and watch them train. 
um, they were taught by a guy named Steve Pearson who was um, who had worked with Suzuki. And the training I saw in those days, I was very impressed by, and I'd never seen anything quite like it. But then when I went to Japan for the first time, not I had lived there when I was a kid, but for the first time in relation to um, uh, Suzuki, I saw the results of that training, meaning I saw the productions, and that's what really won me over. Mm-hmm. And when I first came to Togamura, which is the name of the little village way up in the, in the mountains, with the American actors to create this city company, um, it was clear that Suzuki wanted to work with the American actors as well as his Japanese actors. And so they had to have had Suzuki training in order to be able to come. And he proposed a number of actors who he had worked with, American actors, because he's actually done a, a number of he, – he did a, a Lear with all American actors. Which, which, which toured a number of regional yeah, theaters. Yeah, very, very interesting um, other tangential story. So uh, he proposed uh, some actors, Ellen Lauren, uh, Will Bond, Kelly Marr, people who he had um, trained. And they became – uh, and I, of course, fell in love with them immediately because they're really good actors. And br- I brought a couple of people who I had uh, worked with at UCSD who had also had those years of training. Tom Nellis, for example, who I'd um, uh, worked with at UCSD. And that became the uh, uh, original original company. Now, what happened is it was clear that they had to do Suzuki training, which I was all for and very interested in learning more about. But I brought with me the viewpoints training, which is very much uh, derived from the postmodern dance world of New York in the 60s, which is before my time, and developed by the choreographer Mary Overly, who developed the name and the system she calls the six viewpoints. Um, and I, I had been very influenced by that, and I brought that work that I was doing uh, in, in the viewpoints. And so we did both trainings, not thinking, oh, this is going to be a magical collision of, of trainings. But what did happen is that the actors early on in the history of the company, we said, what does it mean to be a city company actor? And they agreed it means doing these two trainings, Suzuki training and viewpoints training, not smooshed together into one, but separately. And that, over our 17 years of existence, has remained true, and it's something that the actors all teach, and they teach it nationally and internationally. And it's actually, oddly enough, become this magic combination. Not that we ever started out thinking, oh, you put those two trainings together and you create an amazing actor, but it did turn out to be an extraordinary combination of, of chemicals. And now you find in training programs around the country, uh, Suzuki and Viewpoints are now taught together. Mm-hmm. And and I like to think that it was it was really Suzuki's idea, crazy idea that we start a company together that came into existence and caused a, a little seismic change. And I read that you still, with your company, do some of that training every morning before you go into rehearsal. Um, the, the company trains every day before rehearsal we do 15 minutes of uh, Suzuki training and 15 minute viewpoint improvisation before every performance and they teach it so it's an ongoing uh, training which develops and changes as any training does as one gets interested in something or you're working on a project it demands a certain way of preparing and so you you constantly adapt and change the training as you as you move forward mm-hmm. Now, you've spoken about the fact that at times you've wanted to work with existing texts, classic texts, but I was struck looking over the history of the productions that you've done. There are a number of productions by City Company where the credit is conceived and directed by Anne Bogart, developed and performed, if I'm remembering it correctly, by the company. So can you talk about how a company-developed piece emerges even though the idea begins with you, it's it's pretty much exactly as 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 you describe it. I do conceive. I'm, I'm just quoting the website. <laughs> I know, but we tried to find the right words. Words are important. <laughs> I do conceive of the idea. I mean, my job as a director is to come up is to imagine a world, 
And that world has a big fat question in it. As you know, any play has a big fat question in it and plays last because the question remains the same. So, for example, an early City Company production, which was devised, using that word, um, was uh, called The Medium, not to be confused with the Minotti opera. And um, I wanted to do a play about technology. Now, we're talking about 1992, and this is before email... We're just working with computers. There's no internet really except in universities. People aren't using it. Mm. Video art had begun. Video art was sort of sweeping the art world. Um, And I I sensed that something's big happening. And I wanted to do a play about how the new technologies are changing us as human beings. And so I I thought and thought about it. started collecting text, but it's just too big. It's just a huge subject. So... Every play that also needs a, uh, needs a world and a question also needs an anchor. So I ch- found an anchor in the person of Marshall McLuhan because he was the granddaddy of people who thought about this, this issue. So what I did is I spent you know a year gathering possible text, ideas, notions, oh, what if it were this and that. And this is typical of what I do with any devised work that we do as a company is on the first day of rehearsal, I present, and sometimes it takes eight hours, I present every idea I've ever had. I hand over every piece of text I've, 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 um, I've gathered. I, I say, speak out every stupid or smart idea possible. I don't censor. I give it all over. And then we begin to work. They've heard it. They've taken it in. And sometimes it's funny. You know, I'll, I'll mention something that I mentioned that I thought had disappeared. The day before our first audience, it's un, it'll come up again. And the company starts to to take those ideas and turn them into, um, into a play, into um, uh, moments using time and space. You know, um, that's not to say that I'm not fully in it and, and, and helping to guide it. I become then an editor. Because then they start coming up with material and we start writing scenes together based on, say, the 100 pages of text I've given. Um, and then I, I become the, the, the editor in the room who looks at what they are doing and starts to, to, to cut it down, put it in an order. But even the order is very much for discussion. It's, it's a true collaboration. It's, um, I, I quite often get credit for things I do not do. Hmm. But what I do is perhaps two things. I do have the initial idea. I dream, I have a hunch about something, a world that I imagine. And secondly, is I, if I have any talent, it's to juggle other people's ideas, is that I juggle uh, wh- what the company comes up with and start to edit it into uh, the, the, a theatrical journey. Hmm. It's impossible in the time that we have available to talk about each and every one of your projects, but I was very struck by two company projects which happened almost overlapping. You did War of the Worlds, the radio play, the Orson Welles radio play, Mm -hmm. and then in the midst of that created your own piece about Orson Welles, uh, if I follow it correctly, also called War of the Worlds. Yeah. Did did one influence the other? Absolutely. And it's a, it's an interesting story too because it, uh, as a story is that the the idea was to make War of the Worlds with uh Naomi Azuka who's a, a playwright I like very much. We started working on it and it would be about the world of Orson Welles as part of my obsession with American culture. I I'd like to choose people who who whose shoulders were standing on and who were on the verge of being forgotten. You know, people think of Orson Welles as that fat guy who's selling wine at the end of his life, but he was a brilliant artist. So it started by working on this massive play that had a huge set, very expensive play, called War of the Worlds, that was really about Orson Welles and his his vision and his genius. Now, our actor in our company, uh, Stephen Weber, who is to play Orson Welles, um, and as we're working on this project over time, came we, we we it was near uh thanksgiving in i don't remember 2000 1999 i don't remember and uh we thought why not for a thanksgiving just a, a a trick why not stage 
the radio play that he did in 1938, which scared the world and into thinking that Martians had landed. And this was very much an idea, I think, of the, our, 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 our um, sound designer, Darren West, who loves radio plays, and he's, he's a great artist. So Darren and I decided to co-direct it, but it would just be a composition work that would allow Stephen Weber to play the young Orson Welles and for the company to, to, to play out what it would have been like in the studio that night on Halloween in, in 1938. And we d- did indeed open it on, on Halloween at the West Bank uh, on 42nd Street. And thinking that would be it, it's still running 10 years later. Mm-hmm. We still tour it. We don't tour the big play because it's so expensive. Mm-hmm. We did tour it. We took it to BAM. It was at BAM Next Wave. It went to Edinburgh. It was at, it was it premiered at the Humana Festival at Actors Theatre. But it's much too large and expensive a play to drag all over the world. But the radio play, on the other hand, we can put it up in a day, and it is a knockout in terms of a story. It always scares. It's to this day. It scares me. I keep thinking. I know this play. It's not going to scare me tonight, and it does. It's just a phenomenal little play that was like a Valentine. You know, a Valentine on on Halloween. We made it. We put it out there, and it's still. It, we're still touring it. We still get requests for for it to go out. You commented. You get these requests. You can go out. You can put that up quickly. I was struck on the website by the fact that. Um, there's a mention of while you acknowledge what your current productions are, many of your past productions can still be presented, and and if people are interested in them, they should talk to the company. When you go back to a piece of work, if somebody requested something that you might have done seven, eight, nine years ago, at that point, has it become a fixed piece of work for the company, or does it still evolve each that, time that, you go back to it? a great question. I appreciate that question, and it depends on the play. There are some plays, even if we went back now to the medium, which is all one would think one would want to update it since technology has developed so much, I think we would keep it exactly the same. Some plays are born on their first night, and you know this is it. There are other plays that we're still working on years later, we still revise and change, and we're still not happy with it, and we're still adjusting things. Right now on the road is our uh, Who Do You Think You Are, which is a devised piece about the brain. And as I'm sitting here talking to you, those actors are in rehearsal in Los Angeles working on it without me and changing it. I just got an email. They want to change another thing, which I celebrate. you know. And that's a play that will never, ever stay the same. So it, it tells you. You don't tell it. you know. And w- when we did uh, Bob Rauschenberg America, which is coming to New York this um, spring, um, we we made a, a very serious decision as a company because Chuck Me had written it's Rauschenberg so many props you know there's stuffed animals and there's there's uh, screen doors and there's uh, things on rollers and the bathtub we said okay we're going to do this once it's going to open at the Humana Festival we will never tour it so we're going to build it to never tour because oh. it will be far too expensive <laughs> to tour it's got too much stuff well that again is another play we've been doing for 10 years and it's been everywhere it's gone many places around the world and that's the irony you just don't know you can decide something about a play but it's like a baby it turns into what it wants to turn into it's not going to listen to its parents that much hmm. before we wrap up I'm very intrigued by the the chapter titles in your book, A Director Prepares, just on the face of it, beyond going into the chapters themselves, because ultimately I'm sure you still want people to read the book. We hear people talk about theater, a company of theater, embracing, um, supportive, um, you know, places that are comfortable. And you wrote a book about theater in which the subjects in exploring uh, theater and art making, the topics are violence, memory, terror, eroticism, stereotype, embarrassment, and resistance. Those all are either negative or at least provocative words. How do they relate to theater making in in your mind? Well, theater is... And art-making is extremely violent. And I, I love that Picasso said the first stroke on the canvas is always a mistake and the rest of the work is to fix that mistake. But the courage it takes to make a mistake makes you embarrassed or is violent 
or comes out of the terror of unknowing as a human being. To work with kind of courage and strength as if you know what you're doing when you don't is the paradox we live in. We live in complete flux. We're all going to die. We do deal with stereotype. We, we, if our work doesn't embarrass us, it's not worth doing. If we don't function from the state of original terror when we're making something, it won't be funny. You know, it's, it's, uh, it's one of the glories and horrors of being an artist is that you have to live in a constant state of uncertainty and somehow find a way to enjoy it. And to, to, to be bold enough to make that stroke on the canvas that you know is going to be a mistake, even before you make it. I could spend hours talking to you, but your schedule and my schedule don't permit. So thank you for taking the time to spend an hour talking about your work and for giving, in particular, New Yorkers the opportunity to see work that – uh, people across the country and around the world may have had an opportunity in some cases to see before, but but spending some time at home. Well, thank you for your penetrating questions and for your own preparation. I'm, I'm very impressed, so thank you. <laughs> That's very nice of you. <laughs> thank you, Anne Bogart. Our engineer for this Downstage Center program is Chad Bernhard. Our researcher is Craig Thompson. Our director of web development is Rob Perry. And our producer is Gail Yankosik. Downstage Center is recorded in the CUNY TV radio studio at the City University of New York's Graduate School of Journalism in Manhattan. Along with this program, all of the educational and media work of the American Theatre Wing is available online, on demand, for free, from americantheaterwing.org. You can follow ATW on Twitter at The Wing and follow me as well on Twitter at H.E. Sherman. If you're a regular listener to or viewer of Wing programs, we hope you'll consider giving us financial support to sustain our work. Just visit the website and click on Support ATW. For Downstage Center and the American Theater Wing, I'm Howard Sherman. Thanks for listening, and no matter where you live, I hope we'll see you at the theater.